0: Open up to Acts chapter 6. There's also Bibles in the seats backs in front of you, and it will be projected up behind us. So there was a book that was incredibly influential during the days that I was formulating my day, my ideas on church planting. See, I had all of these ideas starting to swirl around about missional strategy, humble and biblical leadership. Training leaders to send out and make ourselves reproducible and replaceable. Having a true plurality where there's not one lead guy leading the show, but a plurality of elders who mutually hold each other accountable to holiness and to uphold the mission of the church. Planting a church that would be a lighthouse and sending church to other churches in the area and seeing people live like missionaries in their own community. And I I knew that I couldn't be the only one. With those ideas, but I had never really seen them in action in my Christian experience up to that time. My church experience was not like what I had just described. It was more inward focusing. It was a a lot of talking about church, about how to do church, if you catch the drift of what I'm saying. And there was a senior pastor, kind of the CEO model type. Training and reproducing leaders was not really something that was um, a high priority on the radar. And I'm not trying this to insult anybody because I have so much gratitude on how God used my time under a different system of thought to help me grow in Christ. But I started to hear messages on the Internet, and I started hearing conferences, and church planting was really becoming a big thing. And a lot of the ideas that I was seeing in Scripture we're being talked about by some really theologically sound men who were pushing this as a necessity in order to reach future generations not just abroad but right here in our country with the gospel and I knew that I wasn't clever enough to invent these ideas and really I didn't want to invent these ideas I was hoping they weren't just coming up as a figment of my imagination or anything like that. I, I was hoping that they were a culmination of calling the church back to what they were called to live out as the body of Christ in Scripture. So at that time, a man that I was helping to plant the first church plant that I was involved with gave me a book called The Trellis and the Vine and told me that he was having all of his leaders go through it. And he said it was the most paradigm shifting book. For him that he had ever read and I really respected this man so for him to say that really meant a lot as he was sharing those things and uh, for those of you that don't know what a trellis is a trellis is the system the structure that upholds the vine growth and helps it grow closer to the Sun but the trellis and the vine works off this imagery from John chapter 15 where Jesus said that I am the vine and you are the branches. It was really based off this really simple concept that if Jesus used the imagery of the growth of a healthy vine to describe what healthy kingdom growth was to look like then why not explore a little bit more what this looks like. So these two respected theologians put aside their theological studies and went deep into studying horticulture and they found some stuff that was amazing, and some ideas that I saw in Scripture were being espoused by reformed, strong, biblically minded evangelicals. And their finding was threefold: some farmers spent too much of the time on the growth of the vine, but paid very little attention to the trellis, the structure that holds up the vine. And as a result, the growth was erratic, and out of control and ultimately became stunted because there wasn't a proper structure in place to help the vine grow towards the sunshine so that it could get the nutrients that it needed in a healthy way. Then there was another group of farmers who had these intricate trellis structures but they didn't spend time pruning and cultivating the vine so while they had this beautiful structure in place they didn't have the vine growth to go along with it because they were more concerned about the structure than the actual growth of the vine. And then the farmers that paid close attention to both the structure of the trellis and the growth of the vine produced healthy growth, luscious fruit, and growth that was in line with what what healthy growth is supposed to look like, not erratic, not stunted, but healthy and reproducing. So they started examining and surveying local church leadership, and they saw the same thing happened to be true. Churches that spent all of their time growing the vine but not working on the trellis trended to spring up quickly, but they didn't have anything in support to, re- to help the reproduction of a healthy vine growth, and ultimately it sprung up. Like I said, some sprung up rapidly, quickly, widely, but they would eventually become stunted and wilted because they did not have the structure in place to support the growth of the vine. Then churches that spent all of their time only working on the structures or the trellis, or the leadership cultures, they tended to be staff-driven rather than having a culture of discipleship moving through the body, and they would have the appearance of health and biblical leadership, but they weren't reproducing, and they were not making disciples, and they couldn't see the body make disciples because everything was kind of pyramid-shaped, and it had to come back to the top. But churches that were shrewd and gave equal attention to both the building of a solid trellis and spending time tending to the vine would see growth, reproducibility, discipleship, and a culture of discipleship rather than discipleship being a program that people go to. And having the ability to grow healthy branches of the vine and seeing them spread out and reproduce. And as I read it, I was floored. These guys got it. Or maybe even better, they were proving that maybe I was onto something and I wasn't just some nut job that was reading things that didn't really exist and having a bunch of crazy ideas. So I started sharing these ideas as I was living in Colorado, helping to plant the church and going to seminary with daniel as he's living down in georgia and we would talk a couple of times a week on the phone and just say look i really believe that this is possible to start to cultivate this in some type of biblical community and we were getting excited and we talked to a couple of friends back in jersey that were crazy enough to want to buy in to this stuff as well and it was really cool stuff but what's really even cooler is that these were not just some ideas that a witty writer wrote about It wasn't the next conference. It wasn't the next big wave of things that people were supposed to catch on to. These ideas were lifted right from Scripture. And one of the key Scriptures that they're lifted from is the one that we're looking at today. So look at this. The the whole point of the first six verses is about the building of healthy structures, the trellis, the the structure of a healthy church. And the result, look at verse 7. then we'll work backwards it says "And the word of god continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in jerusalem and a great many priests became obedient to the faith so by having proper attention given to the trellis look what the vine was able to do i mean it's so exciting when you see this explosive growth of the vine, and you might not get all that jazzed about a passage about healthy structures of church leadership, but if you get jazzed by the kind of vine growth that was described in verse 7, then you should be excited about the things that facilitated it to help it to happen. So this is a bit of a unique message. As we teach to it, we're going to stop along the way, and we're going to try to come in accordance with the passage and show what we're doing to help build the structures that will see this. And I was putting this together. I was thinking, man, this is one of those services like preaching about money, right? You're hoping that that's not the service that you bring your friend to for the first time and, um, you know, that they might cultivate some ideas about who you are as a church. But... Man, the more I thought about it, the more I started to think, if I was visiting a church, knowing and seeing that they took time to go to the Bible and take time to cultivate both the trellis and the vine and give strong attention to what biblical leadership should look like would be exactly what I wanted to see in a church that I was looking to attend or be a part of. And one last thing before I get into the passage, I have met. So many people who have suffered from church hurt over the years that it's almost become a third missionary group. People who have just been abused in religious systems and they carry those scars with them. And the number one reason that people have suffered from this is because of lack of accountability, transparency, and going to the scriptures on what church leadership was supposed to look like. So it's important both to new people and old. So let's dig in. And as the passage starts out, it says that the church is growing, so the vine is moving outward. Look with me at verse 1. It says, Now in these days the disciples were increasing in number. And and that's a good thing. The church was growing, is what that means. It's growing in number. It's expanding. Who doesn't want to see that? Just take a look around to your right and your left. We can say that. We can look at this passage and, I mean, there is not. A, we had to pull out extra chairs this morning before we released the kids, and we have so many kids that now we have a bunch of empty chairs because they were occupied with children who are now hearing about Jesus. That's a good thing, right? You get excited about that. Who doesn't want to see that? It's one of the reasons that we go to the book of Acts because we want to learn how the early church went from this movement of 12 knuckleheads to being a movement that spread throughout the entire whole known world in a short period of time. And this wasn't transfer growth. It's not like the church in Jerusalem was growing in number because people left other churches because they didn't like the music or they felt like they were being slighted and their ministry wasn't being elevated as much as so-and-so's ministry was being elevated or any other myriad of stupid reasons that people give for when they leave churches. And I'm not saying that there's never a good reason to leave a church— Or to transfer to another one, as one of my favorite missiologists has said, "I, I would never steal a sheep, but I'd be happy to rescue a beaten one. But I am saying that most of the reasons that I've heard that people have left churches over the years are stupid. So, anyway, this is not transfer growth, there's nowhere to transfer from. This is kingdom growth. This is the kind of growth that we should be shooting for. I look at the advertising events that so many churches get themselves involved with. And forgive me if I lose my mind up here for a moment. But who's their intended audience? When you listen to Star 9-1, a station for Christians, and they're advertising their church And the whole lingo is how their church is better than your church. Who are they advertising to? When I go to Christian events and you start to see just Christians appealing to other Christians, who are they advertising to? Most of the stuff that you hear on Christian radio or the flyers you get or the events that you see is Christians using insider language, trying to appeal to other Christians, essentially saying our church is better than yours So leave the dumpy old church that you're involved in and come and get involved with this because it's cooler. I remember when I first started planting, a friend of mine showed me a flyer that he got in the mail called 10 Reasons Why Your Church Stinks. And it didn't say stinks, uh, but who, who are they aiming at? When I saw the flyer, I was sick to my stomach. It was one of those times where I was like, thank God there's a phone number on here because I I just have to tell off somebody. I I mean, I I was mad, and you should be mad. The church is Jesus' wife. I remember when I was teaching when I was the chaplain over at Philadelphia Biblical University and everybody's saying, Oh, here's why my church thinks and here's why my church thinks it was a bunch of wannabe theologians that thought they were over and above the church. So they asked me to bring forth a teaching and I said, My name is Eric Lawyer, and I'm in love with Marcy Lawyer. And I, I just kept saying it over and over until they were looking at me and it was awkward and it was, and it was a tension. I'm like, what does this have to do with a devotion? I said, Marcy Lawyer is my wife, just like the church is Jesus' wife. And if you talked about my wife, the way that you talk about Jesus' wife, I'd punch you in the face. Amen. End of devotion. (laughs) You don't realize the church is Jesus' wife. What man here would not get incensed if somebody was talking about your wife in the manner that some people talk about Jesus' wife? She's not spotless yet, but guess what? The book of Revelation tells me that someday she shall be. And we're going to join in that inheritance. So when they send out that kind of advertising, who are they trying to attract? That's not vine growth. That's just you going up and plucking up somebody else's vine and planting it in your vineyard. But that's not what's taking place here. This is true kingdom growth. And, and, and this is exhilarating. So this is what we want to see. But in the midst of this growth, it says that a complaint arose. Check this out. It says, now as the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose by the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So what was the complaint about? The church was the key place, the key structure in that society for caring for widows and orphans. There was no social structures in that day. There was no governmental safety net in those days. So if a woman had a husband die and he did not leave an inheritance, they starved. That's the way it went. And they would lose their right to the land because the land was passed down through the bloodline of the husband's name and through the father. So the church started to strategically focus on reaching the poor and the marginalized and those who were on the fringes of society. But something unexpected happened. It worked. People that were not of native Jewish descent started getting saved. When it says these Hellenists, what it means is these women who were familiar with Jewish culture and they became assimilated into Judaism, but the native Jews were being fed by the church and these foreigners were being neglected, so they came together and they voiced their struggle. And it's not that the church did not want to meet their needs, folks. They just didn't have a structure in place to keep up with the rapid growth. So instead of ignoring the problem, they started to evaluate their structures. And a super quick tangent before we get into how they built those structures, if you have an actual need here, if you're you, I'm talking to you, not you collectively, you I'm talking to. Like if I could point a finger at each of you, you. If you have a need that's not being met, there is a good chance that we might not know what that need is. We're not psychic. These dudes were apostles, and they weren't psychic. So don't just sit there and get a resentment. Let the need be known in a humble way. Notice how this passage unfolded. They had had this need, and they let it be known. They didn't say, they're not needing my needs that they don't even know about, so I'm just going to sit here and get a resentment and throw a tantrum and act like a toddler, even though I've never tried to do anything mature to alleviate the problem and act like an actual Christian. These guys wanted to meet the need. They just had to know that it existed before they could build a structure in order to meet it. Sometimes I think that people that leave a church because a perceived need was not being met think that we, like, sit in a boardroom and we all cackle and we twist our mustaches and go, how can we not meet their needs today? (laughs)" And It's not like that. (laughs) <laughs> that's not the. That's not what we're in this for. Believe me. I mean, you could go and find a better-paying job if that's what you were in this for. I, I, it ain't like that. I assure you. So learn from the humility of how these widows let this real, intangible need be known. And that's what this service is all about. We're trying to build structures to meet the needs of the body. And that's what the apostles did when the needs began to be made known to them, much like us in the early stages of a church plant. And it's interesting that the first thing that they did here is recalibrate and focus on the mission. Look at verse 2. It says, the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. That was probably the first time ever in church history and the last time that that happened. And they then <laughs> so on and so forth. But they go back. And they focus their ministry on the Word of God, both to the church and to those who have not heard. That's what it says in verse 2. And then they reiterate it in verse 4, saying that we are to devote, to devote ourselves to the ministry of Word and prayer. These guys had a focus. This ministry was primarily the ministry of the Word of God of pra- and prayer. And I want to clear up a gross misuse of this passage before I continue and we get into some of our object lessons here this does not mean that they stayed locked up in their study all day, not interacting with people so that they could be antisocial, wannabe theologians. The ministry of the Word of God is a ministry to people. Man, and I wish that I could just put a room full of pastors in here and you would hear me get so much more passionate and scream it. The ministry of the Word of God is a ministry to people. And I say that because I've seen many a coward of a pastor sit in their study, detached from the life of the body, and use this passage to try and justify their cowardice. And yes, I do mean coward because that's what they are, using their position and abusing Scripture in order to justify their lack of love for people. It does not mean that our only job as elders is to preach and to pray. Pastoral ministry is messy. At least it should be if it's biblical. It's not just a bunch of ivory tower theologians detached from the mess and the muck of the people. And I want to say this as clearly as possible. I don't trust a man who wants to be a pastor that doesn't get dirty and get down in the mess. You want to show me that you have a calling on your life to be an elder? You go love the unlovable. You go meet the people on the fringes of society like Jesus did. You go plunge a toilet. I mean, go do something where it's not like I have a Bible degree, I'm here, use me. No. Show that you should be used by serving the people. The ministry of the Word of God is a ministry to people. And a biblical church should be a messy church. Do you get that? And I I want this place to be a train wreck. You look at the ministry of Jesus and the people that surround them. They weren't stained glass saints. They were sinners in need of the gospel. The healthy don't realize that they're in need of a physician, but the sick is who he came for. He did not come to call the healthy, but to call the sick. So people are not qualified to be an elder unless they're willing to get messy. And if they are not willing to get messy, they don't understand who Jesus was. I'm just going to, man, I've met many a pastor that has clean hands. And I'm like, you don't understand my carpenter, my rugged Jesus. That dude got messy. That dude took the word and he brought it to the people. That's what pastoral ministry is all about. So with that, I want to do our first object lesson of this passage and introduce you to your pastors who are the men freed up, either vocationally or bivocationally, to bring you the ministry of the word. So come on up, guys. And they're going to describe in a minute their own unique niche on how they do that. So... First of all, I'm one of your pastors, and my ministry is, um, I'm the primary teacher, ministry of Casting Vision, and a ministry for the multiplication of churches and seeing the expansion of what we're doing here. That's my primary role.
1: Hello, my name is Daniel Nelms. Uh, My role here is, uh, we use the title Executive Pastor, fancy word for all it means is uh, kind of the operations side of things, seeing uh, organization take place, the visions cast. Well, how do we make it happen? Let's get organized to make it happen. And so it's kind of my job here. I also assist in pulpit supply and some of the teaching ministries here in the church. My name
2: is Lee, Pastor Lee, and uh, I have the privilege of. Uh, First, um, working to uh, organize and manage the, uh, the elder board, the, the joy of working with the plural elder board, set the agenda to conduct the meetings and to see the work of the church come together being done decently in order, and um, it is a joy to sit with these men and, and do just that. Secondly, uh, I have uh, responsibility for oversight of the uh, children's ministry, which is in itself a tremendous joy. I remember. Uh, as a young man sitting in a uh, college classroom and uh, my anthropology, anthropology professor says today our, our discussion is going to be on the mythical character Jesus <laughs> and it, I watched uh, i watched a number of my Christian friends just crumble and, and uh, into silence uh, they did not have the uh, they did not have the ability to stand up and defend the faith within them uh, so the the children's ministry we go through and we make sure that we have the, uh, the discipleship and the teaching that, that these young people need to grow into mature members of this body. Uh, I thank all those who are involved in that ministry and uh, we're also doing a new thing with the fourth and fifth graders. Uh, those of you parents know that we meet on the odd weeks and. Uh, one of the things we're starting is to teach um, and have the pastors rotate in and do a catechetical-type teaching with them so they are able to spend the the other weeks in the, in the uh, worship service participating and doing just what they're learning. And the third part of my my work is the uh, to see people, one of the most joyous parts, to uh, teach the ordinance of baptism, to uh, teach the, the biblical concept of local church membership and to, uh, to go through those classes and to, to see our young people as well uh, make that step to becoming a mature member of the body. Praise the Lord for what he's given me and the opportunity to do here. Thank you for your support.
3: My name is Tim and uh, I talk about offerings. <laughs> 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 Took a little while. It's not my official job. I don't really know what my official job is. I think it's to hang out in the office and make sure that Eric and Daniel aren't putting in too many hours and they're going home when they're supposed to be going home and caring for their families. Um, came into this marriage when, when the two churches came together. We called it a marriage with the uh, long-time goal of building into the next generation. And that's become much more tangible possibility now. So I kind of mentor these two guys. They're both young enough to be my sons, and uh, I just relish the opportunity grandsons. to be here. No, not grandsons. <laughs> uh, and I also help with community groups and a couple other things, but that's
0: pretty much it. Ladies and gentlemen, you're, you're pastors. So we do fellowship. <laughs> One of the things Daniel left out is he does a really fine job with the worship, amen? amen. <laughs> so, before I get to the next section, the last section, really, of building the trellis, I want to point out the fact that as you look at this passage, all of the words are plural. There is not a guy. It says the apostles, plural, gathered together and made this decision with the disciples, plural. Plural. To really create and promote a culture of discipleship, you have to get rid in your minds. You have to train yourself to get rid of the idea of there being a guy. The whole reason they gathered is because they pushed so hard against this principle of there being a guy. Senior pastorism has seriously marred the beauty that we see in this passage. They fought so hard together to bring more people on board in the fight against somebody having to report to a guy and that's why we believe in plurality we don't believe in a guy there's only one the guy and what's his name amen there is no if you come here and you say who's the guy it's jesus that's the only answer to that question any other answer is stupid it certainly ain't me the men that we just brought forth are your plurality of pastors who are called the shepherd, this flock. And they're all equals in authority, and there's no senior. I mean, maybe senior, like I mean, Pastor Lee is older than Moses, so he's kind of senior. But to, to understand this passage, we have to get rid of the language of the pastor and start training yourself to use the language of a pastor. I'm certainly not the pastor here because I had the biggest mouth. I'm one guy amongst other men who are far more gifted and far wiser than I will ever be, and I get the honor of serving underneath them as a pastor of your church. As long as the people hold the philosophy of the pastor, we're never going to see the beauty manifested that we see in this passage. The idea senior pastors is unbiblical. There is a senior pastor of this church, and who's his name? Jesus. Jesus is the senior pastor. If you ever hear me use that language about myself, slap me, then call me unqualified. And they were humble enough to realize that they needed help in this massive undertaking. So that takes us into the next place of this passage. No pastor is equipped to be able to meet all the needs of the body and if he thinks he is he's prideful and he's really close to a fall and these guys realized that they needed help so they called on help so just like at this growing church we're in the same place and we're calling on people for help so they started building the next stage of the trellis to continue the growth look it says they summon the people and therefore pick out from among you starting in verse 3 seven men of good repute full of the spirit and wisdom, in whom we will appoint this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. What they said that pleased the gathering, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Permenaeus, and Nicolas, a proselyte from Antioch, and they set them before the apostles and prayed and laid their hands on them. Though the actual term deacon is not used here, Most church historians and commentators see this as the first biblical occasion of raising up deacons in the church. The term deacon is not so much a title, but a description. The term in Greek just really roughly translates to a righteous servant. So that's what they tasked the church with, to raise up a group of righteous servants who could stand in the gap and fill these needs. They said, pick out from among you. So there's this idea of raising up leadership from amongst us not outsourcing or outcropping or having to bring in leadership but training leadership to meet the needs of the body so that's why we hold reproducibility in leadership so highly here and while you hear us talk about it so much the church should always be raising up people in their midst to meet the needs of the church and if you don't it will dead end and it will stagnate if you don't believe me drive by many a church this morning as you leave here and see the empty parking lots. And there were three main qualifications here. I said that they were to be full of good repute. This means they had a good reputation both amongst outsiders and insiders. They were to be full of the spirit, so not just saved, but coming under the ministry of the Holy Ghost and asking for His filling to empower them to be able to do the ministry that's set before them and full of wisdom, knowing how to navigate the difficult difficult demands of ministry and to do it with joy so that it always points people to Jesus. So they appointed these folks to assist in doing the work of ministry so that the apostles could remain focused on the ministry of discipleship. So the needs of the body were being met because the church has a responsibility to meet the needs of of the body. One of the common objections I've heard when I talk to people about having a missional church full of missionaries that's focused on the stuff out there, on the other side of this wall, not the stuff going on in here, is well, what about the needs of the body? Well, that's why structures were created, because no one pastor can meet the needs of the body. We also need to remember, and even if we have needs, in my greatest day of need, My life is but a vapor here today and gone tomorrow, and eventually I'm going to go and be with Jesus, and there are many who have not heard. So we have to create structures so that we can meet the needs in here and empower us to go and reach the people out there. Amen? So they appointed people to meet the needs in the body who are not yet reached, and they free up the ministry of the Word to continue to expand. And Similarly, we've raised up deacons for this exact purpose, and we'd like to share with you that other people the trellis so this is another aspect of the structure to make sure that the vine continues and just like you read this list of names in verses four and five we want to introduce to you the righteous servants full of good repute wisdom and the holy ghost who are here to serve you and it's fascinating because i read this i feel like we as a church are exactly where they were at in so many ways so uh, i'm going to call up daniel and scott and the deacons to come forward and andrew as well they're going to share a little bit, and then I'll close this out right after that.
1: All right, so as we started this church marriage, it was only us, uh, kind of at the beginning, back in April. Um, and the ear Elders were kind of the center point of communication. It was inevitable. We did it with joy, but that is not sustainable as we are been hearing this morning. Uh, I mean, our, our room is full here, but there's still... Ton of people not here. There's a lot of people, guys, that call this church their home. I think we're uppers about 300 right now. If we were to count all the names that says yes, this is my church. And so, um, for us to effectively minister, we have to be able to rest to load on these people behind us. And so, the most important thing is Scott uh, Stangles here is our head deacon. Before he introduces your names, I, I want you guys you know, to kind of pay attention, like, wake up, like, right here, this is important for you to hear. For this to work, for this deacon board to operate and function well, we have to talk about communication for, like, 30 seconds. If there's a need, and you're going to hear what areas these guys are serving in, don't come to Eric, don't come to me, don't come to Tim with the need. I want you guys to have a name to the face this morning and hear the roles and attach it to their faces so you know oh children's ministry you know servants well marshals are guys so we're going to hear the roles right now um and so uh pay attention and on their website under our leader page they're all listed also so you can kind of go back we'll have their pictures up there very soon um scott stangley he's our head deacon um i'll introduce him to you uh he um what do you do? He's, he oversees the benevolence. Sorry, I have a ton of notes, and uh, I realize I'm missing, missing the piece of notes that I had. Scott oversees our benevolence fund, and also he's going to be overseeing our, helping overseeing our deacon board um, here. So, Scott, we'll introduce our deacons to you.
4: Thank you. Uh, so, here are the deacons and the areas that they're overseeing, and again, as Pastor Dan said, come, come to them. Come to them <laughs> with a need. If you have a need, please come to them so that we can meet that need. Uh, so, in no particular order here, Marshall Johnson. Marshall oversees operations and children's ministry. Mario Macaron. Mario is going to oversee our kitchen and hospitality ministries. Matt Mandrakia. Matt oversees the ushers and does a great job with that. And by the way, as I'm saying these names, Many of these people are just already functioning in these ways, so we yep. just want you to know who they are, who their faces are, so if you have a need in a particular area, you can go to them, but they're, they're already serving us. We're not kind of saying, let's watch them start serving. They're already, they're already serving the body in so many great ways. Courtney Mandrakia is gonna oversee Sunday morning greeting and assimilation of visitors. Nancy McKay. Nancy's going to oversee ministry to single mothers and widows. Trevor Pete. Trevor oversees visitation to the sick, especially to those who are unable to attend service or unable to attend community groups. Vito Paratori. Vito oversees our website, graphic, social media. Rich Cromwell. Cromwell oversees our facility, Information Technology, and he's also the deacon representative on the finance team. And you guys, you guys introducing Andrew? Andrew Robbins? Okay. All right. Uh, Just before I, (laughs) before I give the mic up, I just want to reemphasize the fact that a deacon serves. That's what they do. We want to serve you. We want to serve the body of Christ (coughs) here at Redeemer Fellowship. We want to serve the pastors in the way that Acts 6 describes. And just one final reminder, please pray for us and please come alongside us to serve. Do you notice that I use the word oversee? So when Trevor oversees visitation, that doesn't mean every time someone needs to be visited, Trevor's got to be the one to do it. We want teams of people. To join with us, using your gifts, because remember in Ephesians 4:12, it says that pastors were given to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ. To equip the saints—Who are those people? Really great people, or just us?
0: <laughs>
4: us. Amen. See, at the best, we are sinners serving sinners. And we want to serve you. We want to minister to the body of Christ. So please come to us with your needs and join us in ministering to one another.
1: All right. So uh, two more things before this segment of our service ends. I want to beat the dead horse for a minute. If there's a need for the kitchen, who do we talk to? Mario. You don't talk to me. You don't talk to Eric. If you want to greet new people, so I would love to meet new visitors. Talk to Courtney. Yeah. Don't talk to me. Don't talk you to Tim. Talk to Courtney. All right. So that's awesome. Before we close up here, um, Andrew, can you step over here, Andrew? If you guys see this beautiful stage, this is kind of the, um, the brain behind this and also the labor. Um, in April, uh, he power washed the whole building. He... Him and uh, he got some guys, they, they put the, the railing there in the hallways. Uh, Andrew has shown himself, he's, he's a highly skilled man, and he's uh, uh, going to be uh, a candidate for a deacon for building repair and building projects. And so uh, I want to read this to you. This is 1 Timothy 3. Um, this is the qualifications for deacons. So how this is going to work is I'm going to read this through. We're going to give you guys a couple of weeks to, uh, first off, if you haven't met this man, please meet this man. But to give affirmation uh it's like yes he is he's a man for the job for deacon or if there's any kinds of objections um speak with us speak with him a couple weeks guys to think through this and so let me read this to you this is from first timothy 3 it says deacons likewise must be dignified and not double-tongued not addicted to much wine not greedy for dishonest gain they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified and not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and have also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. As your elders, we gladly affirm that Andrew meets these qualifications. He exceeds these qualifications, and so we're presenting him before you guys today. Uh, we'd love to hear back, affirmation from you guys, any questions or anything. So in a couple of weeks, we'll love to formally install Andrews. So that's how the process is going to look. And so as we move on, I want to pass this off to Pastor Eric.
0: All right. Well, in verse six, it says that before, when they raised up the deacons, that they laid hands on them and commissioned them. So I'm going to pray for our deacons, but I just want to invite anybody who wants to get out of your seat and uh, come up and lay hands on them, because that's what it says that they did in the Bible. So you're you're welcome to come up and pray for them as well. And then uh, I'm going to give you a couple application points, and we're going to worship the Lord, the communion, and song to close. A little bit of a longer service than we're used to, but it's worth it for you guys to understand what we've been trying to build for the last four and a half months. God, thank you for the deacons that we have amongst us. Lord, God, I know that as an elder... I would not be able to do, I would crumble under the weight of it if it was not for the deacons who serve so diligently and labor so diligently amongst us, Lord. So as it says that we laid hands and commissioned them, we want to come in obedience to what we 6 and lay hands and commission them so that they could be empowered by your Holy Spirit to do the work that you have set for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Ladies and gentlemen, your deacons. So, what's fascinating as we prepare to close is when you have the right trellis in place, you don't need to bring all of your needs to the pastor, which is a term I already told you doesn't exist. The pastor. It's always a pastor. But since it's been allowed to exist, there's been this bizarre culture that's been allowed to foster where people don't feel like they've been loved or taken care of unless the pastor comes and visits them. They could have 20 people come and visit them in the hospital, but if the pastor was not one of them, then it didn't count. That's such a backwards way of thinking, folks, and it's so anti-biblical. So, for me to take an hour to go and visit somebody in the hospital and make a visit, that's easy. It takes an hour. I enjoy doing it, and when I can, I do it. I've visited many of you in the hospital. I love it. But you know what? To take the time to carefully cultivate a trellis where there's people that can actually ongoingly care for you, disciple you, meet your ongoing needs, and point you to Jesus, that takes actual work. That's getting down in the trenches. And that's the glorious work of this passage. So we looked at the needs of the glorious passage. We looked at the work. And as we close, you look at the fruit. I would read it, but Daniel stole my Bible. So thank you for that says that in verse 7, I've got it memorized, that's alright. It says that at that time, the Word of God continued to increase and the number, ah, I did a good job, that a number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and many of the priests became obedient to the faith and pastors began to steal Bibles. So, as you, you can see why this is important. Who doesn't want to see the ministry of the Word of God expand? Who doesn't want to see people get saved? Who doesn't want to see churches get planted? Who doesn't get excited when we see baptisms? And by the way, we're going to be having some baptisms in September. So if you're here and you're one of the newly saved, let's celebrate it together as we dunk you in the name of Jesus. But these structures are important for three main reasons. They meet the needs of those in the body. They open up the ministry of the word for those both in the body and those who have never heard And they help the Word of God continue to expand and move outward, and that's why I take this stuff seriously. I don't want to waste my life playing church, and I hope that you don't want to either. I want to see revival in our midst. Amen? So let me close with a couple application points. First of all, healthy structures promote healthy growth. Secondly, healthy structures prevent the church from contributing to church hurt because we should always be growing in gospel humility. Third, healthy structures promote the ability to trust in humble and healthy leadership. As you see us continue to just be entrenched in the gospel and move towards humility, you're able to trust us more, and it enables us to be able to minister to you with a place of vulnerability to where it's not just putting on a Sunday face at church, but we're actually hitting the matters of the heart. And lastly, healthy structures Point us to Jesus as we attempt in humility together as a body to magnify his great name. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for the ability to be able to bring up such a, a treasure of saints who give of themselves so freely so that others may hear. In Jesus' name, amen.